So let me go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, um, I pray that you would inform our minds, change our hearts this morning through your word. We pray that we would uh, grow in our understanding and knowledge of how you would have us as a church uh, work and minister and serve together. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, um, so let's go ahead and start this morning with a definition of discipleship. And Randy Barlow has a great definition, and he says discipleship is merely helping believers to obey Christ in every sphere of their life. It's just helping believers to obey Christ in every sphere of their life. And he gets this definition actually from Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20, and this will be familiar for you. And this is where Christ says, go make disciples. So how do we go make disciples, which is what discipleship would be? Well, it's baptizing them, which is get them saved, baptize them, and then teach them to observe or teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So discipleship is helping believers to obey Christ in every sphere of their life. There can be formal discipleship, and we're all probably familiar with this. On one end, formal discipleship could be what is happening down the hallway down here. You have the Sunday school teaching that is happening, the teaching um, relationships that are in the church where somebody comes in and teaches the Word. You can have formal discipleship in the form of scheduled meetings where two ladies are going to meet together or a couple gentlemen are going to meet together so that they can teach or impart um, one, um, from one believer to another. Or you can even have part of the counseling ministry. This is formal discipleship where a, um, a believer would be able to meet with a counselor to address a specific issue that they might be going through or a specific sin that might be in their life. So in addition to the formal discipleship, there's also the informal discipleship. And this is what Dan talks about and admonishes us to, encourages us to each week, that every member ministry. The informal discipleship, it's not unintentional, but it's actually very intentional, but it's not necessarily planned or scheduled. And this might be in the form of stopping and praying for somebody who's going through a particular struggle or who has a big decision. The informal discipleship, it might be encouraging somebody who's suffering, who's going through a trial or period. It's practicing the one another's that we are to practice among the body of Christ, but it's something that each member of the body does intentionally as we live our lives together. It's an informal discipleship that is taking place, but it's all doing the same thing. It's helping another believer to obey Christ in all areas of their life. So this week, we're actually going to start a two-week series on discipleship. And Stuart um, Balaban is back here as well. So Stuart and I are going to teach. I'm teaching this week. He's teaching the following week. And this first lesson, what we're doing is it's going to be able to get a biblical understanding of how discipleship would, would and should look in the life of Calvary Bible Church. But what he's going to do next week is look very practical to say, how can we apply this to our individual lives 
within Calvary Bible Church? What does discipleship look like applied in our lives? And so we're going to accomplish these two goals, to understand it and, to, and then to apply it by looking at a passage that I think is probably one of the most profound passages in the New Testament that explains how every member ministry is designed to look in Calvary Bible Church. This is probably one of the most critical passages that a believer, a member of a church, can understand so that they can be properly informed about how should my life and my personal ministry look like within the church. And this is going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Before we actually look into the passage, and while you are turning there, let me give you a little bit of a background of where Paul gets us to in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 1, this is a great great chapter, but verses 3 through 14, you have all the blessings that God has given us in Christ. And he goes and names blessing after blessing after blessing that we have in him, in Christ. And then after talking about the blessings we have and how we have been sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, in chapter 2, he expounds on the gospel. And he starts at the beginning of chapter 2, saying, you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive together in Christ. And it is now by grace that you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works, but it was saved for good works that God intended for us to walk in. So we were saved when we were dead by God's grace through faith for works that we would walk in. And I emphasize that because that's going to come out today in the lesson. But then in chapter 3, this is where it goes, it goes a little bit, I would say this is going to be pretty neat to think about. So he has just talked about the fact that he has brought together and given the Jew and the Gentile in one body. There's one church bringing both together, and this was a neat mystery that God has given to Paul as a gift, and it was by the grace of God, it was a gift of God, that Paul was able to be the minister of this mystery and to share this mystery, that Gentiles, Jews, together, you can come together in Christ in the church. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul gives us the reason for this, or a reason, a reason God has built the church the way that he has is so that God's manifold wisdom might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that. One of the reasons God has built us together in this room and built the church the way that he has is so that he can be glorified before the angels and demons. Wow. So in light of this, how are we supposed to walk? How are we supposed to live? What do we do with this truth, with this doctrine? And that's what he does. That's what he shares in Ephesians chapter 4. 
So starting in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Remember, we are on display in the amphitheater of the heavens with the rulers and the authorities watching us, glorifying God for his manifold wisdom. What can we do but to walk worthy of this calling to which we have been called? And then in verse 7, after talking about the fact that there's unity now, we have great unity in the church. In verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us in the church have been given a gift from Christ. This is a gift of grace. So, chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling, live in, in the body with love, live in unity, maintain the unity that you actually have in the spirit. The angels are watching, we understand this, and in this unity, God has given not to the collective whole, but to even the individuals within this collective. Within the unity, each individual has been given a grace, a gift from Christ. Our passage today is actually going to look at some of these gifts that Christ has given to the church and some of the gifts that Christ has given to each one of us. We're going to be looking in chapter 4 at how Paul teaches Christ's gift to the individuals of the church includes the church leadership that we have. And this is where verse 11 comes, and this is where we're going to be picking up. So by looking at what Paul teaches about Christ's gift to the individuals, the leaders of the church, and paying close attention to this, we're going to be able to learn, and this is what's interesting, by looking at the gift of the leadership we're going to actually be able to learn what is the role of the lay members of the church. So the yous and the me's of the church. What is our role within the body of Christ? And we're going to learn how we, as a church, will be able to operate and minister within Calvary Bible Church so that we would be able to more closely and most closely follow the design that Christ has laid out for our church. So in Ephesians 4, we're going to be looking at three divine reasons why Christ has given the church leadership to Calvary Bible Church. And we're going to see first that he has given them so that individual saints would be equipped Secondly, we're going to see that immature saints will be stabilized. And finally, number three, we're going to see that the intertwined or the interconnected saints, they are going to grow in love. So I actually begged and pleaded with Rod to give me a three-week series to cover these verses. He said no, <laughs> so... What we're going to actually focus on, the vast majority of our time, is going to be looking at those first two, first two verses, okay? Um, so let's go ahead and open up, starting in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and we're going to read um, through verse 16. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it is built up in love. Three divine reasons why Christ has given the leadership as a gift to this church. So before we start looking at the reasons why he gave us the, the gift, the leaders, let's actually look at those leaders, okay? And that's where, that's where we find in verse 11. So in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So when we actually look at this, depending on the Bible translation that you have, it's going gonna, it's gonna to list it a couple different ways. How many of you all here have an ESV is what you're reading with? Okay, and, and do we have a New American Standard? Okay, and Russ, King James? <laughs> yeah, we got, we got a couple back here. Yeah, no, and this actually is going to come into play. Does anybody have an NIV? Okay, we've got, yeah, we've got a few NIVs. Good. So when you're looking at this, depending on the translation that, you're, that, that you have, it's going, to, um, it's going to change some of the wording and specifically the articles beforehand, so the, and, and it's going to have an impact in our understanding. So the ESV, it says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, right? The New Amer- American Standard says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, um, and then you have almost a hybrid of these two with the Revised Standard Version. Does anybody have the Revised Standard? Whoa, one, there we go. All right, there we go. So the Revised Standard says, it almost blends these two understandings. It says, the gifts that he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So the truth mentioned earlier in from Ephesians chapter 3. This is a true statement that each of these positions, the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, these men are gifted their position and their role in the church. And Paul, Paul mentions this in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians verse 2. He said that it was a stewardship of God's grace that was given to him. But then explicitly in verse 7, he says it was the gift of God's grace. So it is true that it is a gift of God to the individual leaders for them to be in their positions of leadership within the church. Okay, That is a true statement. And that's, that's kind of along the lines of what the New American Standard is getting to, that he has given some as apostles and prophets. But what we're going to find, even though that is a true statement, the more full understanding of Ephesians 4.11, what he's, what he's intending with the giftedness, it actually 
is going to come into light when you look back at verse 7. Verse 7 that we had talked about, the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of the believers, each one has been given a measure of Christ's gift. And then what you find is immediately after talking about the fact that each believer has been given a measure of, of uh, Christ's gift, you have this little parenthetical statement about Christ, and then it seems like he comes back and starts talking about the gifts again. And it might be a little bit confusing, but when you look at it and realize that parentheses, what it is doing is Paul is expounding on the fact that Christ has the authority to give the gifts that he does. And, and so right after verse 7 where it says, he gives the gifts. He talks about Christ coming down, and he does his work on earth. He returns back up into heaven, and when he returns, he carries with him the captives that have been set free, and this mirrors what you find in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where it talks about how Christ who was in the very form, in the very nature, who he was, was God, but he came down, was obedient to death, even death on the cross, but after rising again, has been brought up and given the name that is above every name, and at that name, every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall confess, confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Because of what Christ did, descending to earth, fulfilling his ministry, returning to heaven, bringing the captives with him, he is Lord. And as Lord, he has the authority to give the gifts that he does. So when you look at this, Ephesians 4, 7, Christ gives gifts to these individuals. 8 through 10 he has the authority as Lord to give these gifts. And now verse 11, this is where we come in and read that he has given. Again, these gifts are being given to, excuse me, to each one of us within the body of Christ. The point is, in verse 11, that with his authority, he gave to each one of us. He gave to each member of his flock the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And if you were to be reading um, from a Greek text, you would see that it actually mirrors what we find in the New American Standard that it, and, and the NIV. It says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. So it's not he gave the apostles the gift of their apostleship or gave the prophets their gift of, of the apostleship. His gift was the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And so when we look at these gifts that were given, these roles that we have, Let's just take a brief moment and understand who they're talking about. So you have the first two, the apostles and prophets um, that are given. And these first two classes, these are gifted men that are gifted to the church. And they were really given for three basic reasons. We could have a whole series on apostles and prophets. But in summary, what we're going to look at is the apostles and prophets, they received and declared the revelation of God's word. And this is, um, you can see this in Ephesians 3, 5. 
Okay, very, very clearly um, laid out there. Um, but also, on top of receiving this word and declaring it, they also gave confirmation of the word. That the, they gave confirmation that the word was true and was from God, and this was through wonders and signs attesting to the truthfulness of the word. And you can see the reference there in 2 Corinthians. But then, um, thirdly, what they also did, and we found this if you look back just two chapters, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, that the apostles and prophets were the foundation upon which the church is built. And if you go ahead and flip back two pages, or one page, to Ephesians 2, verse 20, and talking of the household of God, says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets proclaiming and revealing the word that has been given to them, that has been, been attested through the miraculous signs and wonders, that is the foundation upon which, and if you look in the next two verses, 21, 22, the rest of the structure of the church is built. So the apostles and prophets, these were given as a gift to the church. So um, one of the things that I... That I want to look at next, though, is the evangelists. And this is something that's kind of interesting in here, because the evangelists, the, these are a gift that are given to the individuals of the church, but there's not a lot that is taught about the evangelists. There's a couple references, and you have in Acts chapter 20, where um, th there's someone who's called the evangelist. Does anyone remember who he is? Yes, Philip. So in chapter 21, um, he's called Philip the Evangelist. And we see him evangelizing. Anyone know any of the key people he evangelized to? Ethiopian eunuch. That was Philip. The gospel, when it first came to Samaria, that was Philip. And he was called Philip the Evangelist. And then you also have in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, um, where, Phil, uh, where Timothy is told, do the work of an evangelist. So the evangelist, it's not an office in the church, but the evangelist is one who evangelizes, one who shares the good news. And the evangelists are given to the church, and we're going to see, to train and equip and build up the church. But they are a gift to the church. And then the fourth group that we see here are the pastors and teachers. So the pastors and teachers, this is where we're actually going to take a little bit of time and look at grammar. So this will be fun. So in regards to Ephesians 4.11, okay, and going back to the different translations, the ESV and the NIV, it follows the Greek, okay? The New American Standard, the King James, um, if you um, have those, just look up here. <laughs> so no. um, this Pretty straightforward, pretty straightforward. So, in the Greek, as mentioned before, we have the article, the, before each one of these words. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, if you look at teachers, there's no the at the end, uh, right before the teachers, okay? So, um, there is, 
And I want to say, I wanted so bad, I actually put a lot of this in here, and I highlighted and deleted and took out a lot. I'm going to ask you, I want people to come and talk to me after we're done, because we can look and talk about what's called the TSKS construction in the Greek. I learned a lot about this. So come talk to me so that it's not lost. <laughs> so in short, here's what happens. Under a very specific set of circumstances having to do with um, the way the nouns, and in this situation, um, the pastors and teachers, those are two nouns. Within this formation, there are a certain set of circumstances where Greek would indicate that those are the same people. It's a one-for-one -one correlation. And if you have heard people teach that this is the pastor teacher, right? And I think it's something that probably is not foreign to a lot of us. So he's given each one of these people, including the pastor teacher, that that would be indicated by that rule. The problem is this passage doesn't follow that specific set of rules. So what, um, what I'm, I, I want to read, and this will just help us understand this very simply without going into it. There is a uh, um, Greek scholar, Daniel Wallace, this is his area. Within Greek, he's really good on articles and on this TSKS construction. This is what he says. The text seems to affirm, both grammatically and exegetically, that all pastors were to be teachers. That's pastor-teacher. Though not all teachers were to be pastors, meaning there are teachers, as referred to here, that are not pastors. But every pastor was going to be included in the teacher. Come and get me. We'll draw diagrams. It actually gets really fun, and we'll take a look at it. But in short, the best understanding, according to Wallace, and he knows Greek <laughs> very well, the best understanding of this passage is you have the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers and the teachers who are not pastors. And that's what we would call our lay teachers. When you walk down the hallway down here, this hallway is filled with lay teachers. And they are included grammatically and exegetically, according to Wallace, they are included in this list of the people, the leaders that God has given to the church. That Christ has given to the church. Now, there's a reason why I've stopped and stressed on this a little bit. A little bit because it is exciting and it was fun because things come to truth. So, one, you know, it is true, and so we want to talk about it. But another reason is because this is going to become very important as we get into this passage to know how to properly apply. This is going to hit us in the face when we fully understand that one part of the gift within the church leaders that Christ has given to each one of us, one part of that includes the lay teachers within the body. And we're going to come into that, especially when it comes into that, into the application. So God has given us five, five groups of leaders within the church, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, and lay teachers. We together on this? 
good. And I think I actually put Wallace with the full citation down at the bottom. So if that intrigues anybody, you can go look at that. So we can look at that together, though. So the big question is, why did Christ give these leaders, these gifts to the individual saints within the body? Why did he do that? And this is when we're going to get to those three divine reasons. The first of which is so that individual saints, the individuals sitting in the chairs, I almost said pews, we've had chairs here, the individual saints would be equipped. Read with me in verse 12. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. What does this text say is the reason the leaders were given to each one of us? Why were they given? To equip. To equip the saints. It's very common, I think, for us to find the mindset or the mentality in in churches. And I think many of us may have even come from this type of a background where the church leadership was given for the equipping of saints, for the work of ministry, and for the building up of the body of Christ. There can be this understanding that the reason the pastors are paid to do their pastoring is so that they can equip us, so that they can do work of ministry, so that they can build up the body of Christ. I don't think it would be too hard to find people in this room who have seen that very mentality, either in our own lives or in the churches that we've come from. But in English, you have four and two, two prepositions. There's a little bit of an overlap, right? I gave for this reason, I gave to this purpose. There's some overlap in the understanding. And the same thing is actually true on the Greek side. Um, and so much, to the, so much so that some of the translations that you guys are going to be reading are actually going to say that he gave for the equipping of saints for the work of ministry. How many of you all have that in your, in your Bible? Okay, I, th- I think the New American Standard has it that way. The, New, the King James, I think, has it that way as well. So when you look at it, really the, the prepositions that are used is in verse 12... He gave to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so the way that it would actually be read is, um, I, I think that you'll actually find some of the translations out here will render it this way as well. The leadership was given to equip the saints. Why were they, why are the saints to be equipped for the work of ministry, and for the building up of the body of Christ. That actually follows the same prepositions that you would find in the Greek. And um, so there's one um, theologian who actually said, the second and third phrases, those two that we were talking about, for the work of ministry and um, for the building up of the body of Christ, are dependent on the first phrase. 
as indicated by their being introduced by different preposition. So what, what this simply is saying is the leadership was not given to do all of these things. The leadership was given to equip the saints. And what are the saints being equipped for? The saints are being equipped for the work of ministry or service and for the building up of the body of Christ. So in Ephesians 4.11, the leadership does the equipping. The saints do the serving, the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. So will church leadership, will they equip the saints, plus will they also be doing the works of service, and will they also be building up the body of Christ? Is that something that elders are going to be doing as well? Absolutely. Yes, they're going to be doing those things, but you don't get that from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. What you get from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 is that they are going to equip the individuals so that the individuals will be doing the ministry and the service and the individuals will be the one building up the body of Christ. E, um, Ephesians 4 shows that the leadership was given to equip the saints. Stop. At this point forward, it's going to be looking at what the saints are equipped for. The rest of this passage is talking about you and me. It's not talking about the ministry that's being done by the pastors, the elders, the evangelists. So for what purpose was the equipping of the saints? The saints are equipped to minister within the body, and to build up the body. This is counter, undoubtedly, to the way that many of us understand or have understood the role of church leadership. And I would venture that this is counter to the way that many of us have understood our role as individuals. How easy it is to think, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I might even be involved and come on, you know, Wednesday night. We don't have Wednesday night, but <laughs> I might come anyway because that's what I do, right? I'll give an offering, but Ephesians 4.11 says that is an unbiblical understanding of the role of the believer. The believer has been designed by Christ to be the ones doing the ministry, doing the serving that builds up the body of Christ. So who is it here in this room that agrees that the body of Christ needs to be ministered to and built up? You can raise your hands. Who agrees to that? I think we understand that. Many of us do. So Ephesians 4.12 teaches us that what the body needs is going to be done and needs to be done by us. What the leadership, their role is, is to equip us to do that. So if our understanding has not been that, we need to change. 
if your understanding has been that the leaders, the pastors, they're the ones who do the ministry, we need to correct our understanding. And having had that understanding corrected, we then need to act upon our new and our biblical understanding. We as a body, if we don't know what to do so that I can fulfill this passage, we are not left to languish and say, I don't know what to do. He tells us very clearly we need to go to our elders, to the pastors, to the teachers, and say, I need you to fulfill your God-given responsibility and equip me to do the ministry that God has called me to do. How do we apply this? We go to the elders, we go to the pastors, to the teachers, and say, equip me. That's right, <laughs> that's right, which is where they will take us, correct? That's right. And they will be the ones to equip us to do this ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, I love where Paul goes next because you could ask the question, how much ministry is enough? At what point of ministry am I able to check the box and say, I have fulfilled my calling to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so if you look in verse 13, this is going to be where Paul answers that question. When do I get to throw in the towel? Verse 13, we do the work of service to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity. The unity of what? The unity of the faith? And of the knowledge of the Son of God. We will each serve and minister in the body until we all have unity of faith and unity of knowledge. So we will serve until every member in our body has come to attain the understanding of the unity that we have in verses four and, I mean verses one and following of the unity in Christ. And we're going to keep doing this until each member of the church has unity in the knowledge of Christ. Now, can there be a, not, a unity in ignorance? If we all stop learning of Christ, can we settle down to the lowest common denominator and say, we now have unity so we can stop ministering and serving? Paul answers that question. He says, until there's a unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. How mature? How, how mature do we need to be? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are called by God to minister and serve in this body to build up the body until every single believer has just as much faith and knowledge of Christ as Christ himself has about himself. Man, <laughs> there's no towels being thrown in. In Numbers 32... You have, let's well, switch gears, right? <laughs> In Numbers 32, you have Israel 
that's going to go conquer the promised land. And there's two tribes that want to stay on the other side of the Jordan. They want to stay in Jazir and Gilead. And the tribes of Reuben and Gad ask Moses. They say, we have a lot of livestock. This land is good for livestock. Let us just stay over here. This will be our inheritance from the Lord. To which Moses rebukes them and condemns them and says, how dare you want to be over here when your brothers are fighting for their inheritance? And Moses ultimately agrees and blesses their request when they make a promise. In, in verse 18 of Numbers 32, they promise, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained the inheritance. So we have Reuben and Gad saying, we are going to fight next to our brothers until each one of them has gained their inheritance. Then we will return home. I want you to commit in your heart that you will not quit ministering to build up the body of Christ until each one of your brothers and sisters has gained their eternal inheritance. Just like those two tribes can quit when everyone else's work is done, that's when we get to quit our ministering and serving. We have members of our flock who faithfully minister and work to build up the body of Christ. Has Marge Price reached the point where she is free from ministry? Have you spoken to her lately? Has Joe Oliver reached the point where he's discipled enough young men that he's able to stop his ministry? Unless something changed from Friday morning until now, Joe Oliver would say, no, he has not stopped his ministry to build up the body of Christ. May our final acts be before we step into the river of death that separates us from the celestial city. May our final acts be that we are ministering to serve and build up the body of Christ. That needs to be our heart. May you find your final act be of one of obedience to Christ by ministering and serving your local body. This is the ministry that Christ has called us to. This is the ministry that Christ has called the lay members of this church to. This is the same ministry that Paul was charging the individual members of the church in Ephesus to in around 60 AD. Let me read to you the words of John Chrysostom somewhere around 395 AD, about 330 years after Paul wrote these words to the members 
of the church in Ephesus. He wrote this to his local members in Constantinople. Until then, you must labor to this end. God has honored you and ordained you that you should build up another. Yes, for about this, the apostle was also engaged. And for this was the prophet prophesying and persuading and the evangelist preaching the gospel. And for this was the pastor and the teacher. All had undertaken one common work. And tell me not of the different spiritual gifts, but tell me that all had one work. Brothers and sisters, 1,700 years after these words, with the authority of the words of the Holy Spirit from Ephesians 4, I can stand here and charge you with confidence, my fellow flock members of Calvary Bible Church, work, minister, and serve to build up the fellow members of Calvary Bible Church. This is the reason that Christ has given you the leadership of Calvary Bible Church. It is to work and serve to see them built up. So what happens when this happens? What takes place when the body of Christ, the lay members, are doing the works of service to build up the body? Point number two, immature saints are stabilized. Look in verse 14 with me. When this is taking place, it's so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is probably one of the most mind-blowing truths of this passage. When the members of Calvary Bible Church are ministering and serving the body, believers are stabilized, strengthened, and grown. How would you naturally respond to this question if you were to ask? Now, I'll tell you how I would. But if you were asked, who has God given to the church to stabilize, strengthen, and grow the church? How, how would your instinct be to respond? I think I would say, well, that's what the pastors are for. That's what the elders, the shepherds are for. The text is clear. God gave the leadership to equip the saints. The saints are to work and serve. This work and service of the saints is so that we may no longer be children. The work and service of the saints is what accomplishes that. It is the work of the believers in the pew, not merely the work of the leadership that is directly responsible for the growth and the maturity of the church. 
Notice how the text describes this maturing effects of the ministering saints. It says they're no longer children. And what is a child like? A child is tossed to and fro by the waves. A child is carried around by every wind of doctrine. A child is carried about by human cunning, carried about by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. When the members of our body are all ministering and serving in our body, the individuals are grown and matured. They no longer are children. They are solid and firm in trials. They're no longer tossed to and fro by waves of tribulation. They know the truth. They know theology. They no longer are carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're discerning. They're no longer carried about by human cunning. They are wise. They no longer are carried about by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. I can think of no greater calling on my life or on your life than to be the one, to be the instrument that Christ has ordained to be used to build up and grow his children. Let that sink in. You and I are the ones that God has chosen to stabilize and strengthen the church. Now, I want to wrap back up to verse 11. And I mentioned that this would come back. And I want to show specifically how that fifth office of the lay teacher ties directly in to the maturing process that happens. We have here... In verse 11, the teacher, and verse 14, that they are no longer to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. So if you were an Ephesian reading this letter for the first time, one of the things that would stand out to you is that there's a very similar word. It's a different variation of the same word when we said teacher and doctrine. And the teacher of verse 11 is didaskalos. Doctrine of verse 14 is didaskalia. Okay, very similar words. The teachers, the didaskalos, one of the effects of their ministry is stabilizing so they're no longer driven about by didaskalia, the doctrine. So to help us kind of see this connection even more, you could help me follow, or help follow, let me help you follow this understanding. The teachers, including the lay teachers of the body of Christ, they are here to teach doctrine. They teach the didaskalia. Teachers are doctrinators, so to speak. When you have doctrine that must be delivered, a doctrinator is the one who delivers it. When you have the teacher, the teacher is teaching. That works in English, and you see it in the Greek as well. 
What the teachers are doing are the very steps that accomplishes the doctrine that is being taught that lets the body be stable and not driven and tossed. The teachers, including the lay teachers from verse 11, are a key principle or a key um, individual that God uses to let sound doctrine be passed down to the members of the body of Christ. If you are a teacher in Sunday school, you are teaching even to the little kids sound doctrine. Teach the unbelieving children so that they may be saved. Teach believing children so that they may be built up and stable by the, against the wind of doctrine. If you're teaching adults or small um, groups or Bible studies, you teach the doctrine. That teaching of the doctrine is what lets them be stable and strong against the winds of doctrine that come. If you are a teacher at Calvary Bible Church, this is a high calling. This is the means Christ has ordained to stabilize and build up his body. You are a gift of Christ to each member of this church. You are teaching the flock. And it might be down the hallway, it might be in a small group, or it might be here in the, in the adult Sunday school. Wherever you might be, you are, a high, you are in a high calling and are a gift to the individual members. Now, are you a member at Calvary Bible Church? You must be about the ministry to which Christ has commanded you. You must be doing the works of service, doing the works of ministry to build up the body of Christ. As mentioned earlier, if you're unaware what to do, come grab me. Come grab a pastor. Come grab an elder and say, equip me. We will do that. The words of the text are clear. There's no ambiguity. The language is simple. We each, the lay ministers, must be about the business of ministering in Calvary Bible Church. This is discipleship. This is what Christ has called us to. Discipleship, as was mentioned, is merely helping believers to obey Christ in every sphere of life. This is done through the work of the ministry of the lay members of the body of Christ. So what is the effect when that is done in the church? Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. We are each the joints with it which it was equipped. It's 
joined and held together when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Our God and Father, what a blessing, what a blessing that you have ordained the structure of your church to work in such a way that the members, the members of your body do the work of ministry. Would you find us faithful, conform us to your design and your plan. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.